The following is a presentation of Gallery Church Downtown, part of a family of neighborhood churches seeking to display God's greatness to the world. For more information, please visit gcbdowntown.com. Then the high priest asked Stephen, Are these charges true? To this he replied, Brothers and fathers, listen to me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran. Leave your country and your people, God said, and go to the land I will show you. So he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. After the death of his father, God sent him to this land where you are now living. He gave him no inheritance here, not even enough ground to set his foot on. But God promised him that he and his descendants after him would possess the land, even though at that time Abraham had no child. God spoke to him in this way. For 400 years, your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, God said. And afterward, they will come out of that country and worship me in this place. Then, God gave, then he gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision. And Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him eight days after his birth. Later, Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob became the father of the twelve patriarchs. Because the patriarchs were jealous of Joseph, they sold him as a slave into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him from all his troubles. He gave Joseph wisdom and enabled him to gain the goodwill of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So Pharaoh made him ruler over Egypt and all his palace. Then a famine struck all Egypt and Canaan, bringing great suffering, and our ancestors could not find food. When Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our forefathers on their first visit. On their second visit, Joseph told his brothers who he was, and Pharaoh learned about Joseph's family. After this, Joseph sent for his father Jacob and his whole family, 75 in all. Then Jacob went down to Egypt, where he and our ancestors died. Their bodies were brought back to Shechem and placed in the tomb that Abraham had brought from the sons of Hamor at Shechem for a certain sum of money. As the time drew near for God to fulfill his promise to Abraham, the number of our people in Egypt had greatly increased. Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. He dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our ancestors by forcing them to throw out their newborn babies so that they would die. At that time, Moses was born, and he was no ordinary child. For three months, he was cared for by his family. When he was placed outside, Pharaoh's daughter took him and brought him up as her own son. Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and action. When Moses was 40 years old, he decided to visit his own people, the Israelites. He saw one of them being mistreated by an Egyptian, so he went to his defense and avenged him by killing the Egyptian. Moses thought that his own people would realize that God was, not, was using him to rescue them, but they did not. The next day, Moses came upon two Israelites who were fighting. He tried to reconcile them by saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you want to hurt each other? But the man who was mistreating the other pushed Moses aside and said, Who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? When Moses heard this, he fled to Midian where he settled as a foreigner and had two sons. After 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to Moses in the flames of a burning bush in the desert near Mount Sinai. When he saw this, he was amazed at the sight. And he went over to get a closer look. 
he heard the Lord say, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Moses trembled with fear and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have indeed seen the the oppression of my people in Egypt. I have heard their groaning and have come down to set them free. Now come, I will send you back to Egypt. This is the same Moses they had rejected with the words, Who made you ruler and judge? He was sent to be their ruler and delivered by God himself through the angel who appeared to him in the bush. He led them out of Egypt and performed wonders and signs in Egypt, at the Red Sea, and for 40 years in the, in the wilderness. This is the Moses who told the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your own people. He was in the assembly in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our ancestors and he received living words to pass on to us. But our ancestors refused to obey him. Instead, they rejected him and in their hearts turned back to Egypt. They told Aaron, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who led us out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. That was the time they made an idol in the form of a calf. They brought sacrifices to it and reveled in what their own hands had made. But God turned away from them and gave them over to the worship of the sun, moon, and stars. This agrees with what is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring me sacrifices and offerings 40 years in the wilderness, people of Israel? You have taken up the tabernacle of Molech and the star of your god, Rephan, the idols you made to worship. Therefore, I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Our ancestors had the tabernacle of of the covenant law with them in the wilderness. It had been made as God directed Moses, according to the pattern he had seen. After receiving the tabernacle, our ancestors under Joshua brought it with them when they took the land from the nations God drove out before them. It remained in the land until the time of David, who enjoyed God's favor and asked that he might provide a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. However, the Most High does not live in houses made by human hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? You stiff-necked people, your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him, you who have received the law that was given through angels but have not obeyed it. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this, they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses lay their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold the sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of their killing him. 
On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. May God bless the reading of his word. Amen. Amen. Yeah, my responsibility to just try to help us today to understand what Stephen was saying. Because there is an example here in Stephen that I think is very relevant for us today. Um, and so let me start with this. Anybody in here a bowler? You like to bowl? And I'm not talking about cricket. You're the pitcher. I know that's called a bowler. Uh, I'm learning that cross-culturally, things mean different things to different people. I'm talking about taking the, the pen that has three finger holes in it, and you go back and you bowl. Anybody in here consider themselves an avid bowler? Anybody in here been bowling? All right, okay, there's a few of you. All right, so how many of you in here asked for the gutters to be inflated so that your ball doesn't go into the gutter? All right, there's a few of you that fall into that category. And we already heard somebody say that's cheating, right? So it's not cheating when it just helps you feel successful in life, right? There's so many things about that analogy that's breaking down in this millennial generation. Um, the uh, So let me just start with this. When A bowler... That is not an avid bowler like you and me. We just go. Like, we'll go hang out with friends. Some people on your team will go up to the line, and you know what I'm talking about if you've ever been, and you stand there and you kind of just do this, right? You just, you just throw it. I mean, because number one, your goal is not to try to look competitive, because the more competitive you look, the higher people expect your score to be. But when, but when you just go up and you're just like, I'm here to have fun, and you just throw it and you're just like, oh, what's it going to do? And on the inside, you're sitting here saying, I'm still embarrassed, right? I'm still embarrassed. And then there's other people that they'll try. They don't have, they don't have the same bowling technique at all. Like every time they go up, they do something different because it no, nothing works. And so sometimes they'll just cup the ball in their hand because their fingers ache or whatever, and they just go up and they just throw it. Uh, some people will take two or three steps and just do whatever. But then there's that person. Like I'm not going to say that it's you or on the team, but they've obviously watched bowling in February because it's the only time ESPN covers it, right? Uh, because there's like a little gap in professional sports. There's not enough to be shown, so bowling becomes the Sunday event on ESPN. And so you see them, and they get all this thing. They get tucked in. They got the approach. You know, they squat a little bit. And they actually know what the arrows are for, right? Have you ever noticed that? There's arrows at the back by the scorer's table, and then there's arrows at the line, and then there's arrows in the, in the, in the lanes. And I've always wondered, like, yes, that's the direction the ball's supposed to go. Is it just like a directional arrow that, you know, is supposed to go that way? But somebody actually knows, like, they, they, they know, like, this is the approach to the line, and so they have every step perfectly laid out. And then when they finally let it go, their leg ends up over here. You know, they have this thing. And they do this thing with the ball where it's spinning sideways. And it goes straight for a while. And then the, the arc takes over. And you're just like, whoa, how did they do that? Like, I've never learned to spin a bowling ball. Has anybody here ever tried to learn to spin a bowling ball? They've never been able to do it? Anybody? Can anybody spin it? Like, some of you guys can do it? Oh. That's awesome. When I spin it, I need the bumpers, right? So, but here's, 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 what, here's why I use bowling as an analogy for this passage of Scripture. I think it's so important. So much of our faith, we want us to be standing at the line where we can just give some sort of quick, like, little throw at it. That's, 
what we're looking for. I want my faith to be short, sweet, easy. I just want to do this with it. Um, But in actuality, what Stephen is modeling for us is the approach. It's like we've got to understand what we're doing and what we're saying because the line is so important. And once we finally get a chance to release our words into the world, they mean so much. And so Stephen is what I believe in this passage of Scripture, allowing us to accept a challenge in our spirit today is because a lot of us really don't know how to talk about what Jesus has done for us. We don't know how much to tell people. We don't know when to tell people stuff. Sometimes we would rather just say, here's a podcast. Here's somebody I trust. Go listen to this. When in actuality, they don't trust the person on the podcast. They trusted you. That's why they asked you, right? And so a lot of times they'll go and they'll Google the person that you told them that you're giving the podcast to, and then they hear something they don't like, and then they'll never listen to the words of the person that you've told them the podcast, when in actuality they trust you. And so we've got to figure out a way of getting to a point where we understand what God's been up to, what he's doing in the world, what he has been doing in the world before us, and what he's going to be doing in the world after us. And this is what Stephen is actually doing here. And the thing that's frustrating is, is that it seems like Stephen is giving an answer that was absolutely nothing to do with the charges that were being posed at him in Acts chapter 6. If we look at Acts chapter 6, we'll realize that they're accusing him, again, speaking against the temple and the law, but yet he's going back and telling a story. He goes back and starts talking about Abraham's call to go, he talks about Moses, he talks about Joseph and his brothers, and he starts talking about all this stuff. Sometimes it's mentioning land, sometimes it's not. He's going through all these different things. But the thing that Stephen is doing, I think, is really important. Because I want you to know that Stephen is not giving this in isolation, which for many of us, we want to feel like that we're not the only one doing things. Stephen is following an example that's all throughout Scripture. Nehemiah chapter 9 is a discourse much like Stephen is giving. Um, Daniel chapter 9, Psalms 105, Psalms 106 are chapters of the Bible that are mapped out where somebody much like Stephen is saying, let me go back to the beginning and help you to understand why we are where we are today. Because so many of us, we don't understand. For instance, a modern day example, me being a white pastor in the light of the culture today, me taking a short approach to a complicated issue would be me saying, I've never owned a slave. There are a lot of people that have my skin tone and my background that don't understand the, the depth of the cultural and ethnic and the, the, the issue that's really behind where we are as a nation. And a lot of people will be like, you know what, I'm just going to come along. I'm just going to allow what I feel like is an easy one. I've never owned a slave. Why do people not like me? When in actuality, we've got to go back and know our history enough to say, I understand why I'm being asked the questions I'm being asked. Now, how do I represent Christ and bring peace? And I can't do that in a one-liner. That's why Twitter is dangerous. That's why Facebook is dangerous. That's why all these other forms of social media are dangerous. Because too many people are just going up to a line and just lobbing something and not taking time to go back and explain through history and through love and through truth why we are where we are. And Stephen is setting an incredible example of this. And there were also other writers in the first century. I mean, we could go back. It's not in our Bible. It's, it was, it's not included, but there's other 
Bibles, like the Catholic Bible and other um, backgrounds where there's writings from the Maccabees and other books that actually have great examples of the four or 500 years prior to Jesus of other men and women that actually talked at, at length about the history and the story. Josephus, who's a writer that we've had a lot of discovery from his words in the first century, he was doing the same thing, talking at length about the history of Israel and what God was doing in the world in and through them. And I think if we listen carefully, we're going to understand as representatives of Jesus, we've got to learn to talk. We've got to learn to talk to people. We can't get frustrated. Now, I know that we have the capacity to learn because there are a lot of you in this room that have multiple degrees already. So I know we have the capacity to learn. A lot of us in here, we are an expert on friends at the show, right? Not the people. Because you've Netflix binged them, you watched them when they were on TV, and now you've rewatched them two or three times, and it's now what you go to bed to every night, and now you are an expert on friends because you've given the time to it. There's a reason why we're not an expert on talking about Jesus. We've got to figure out a way of spending more time understanding what he's done and spending more time going after what he's been here for and realize what God has done. Now, Stephen, when he starts this, I said just a few moments ago that he started with Abraham. He actually didn't. That was a misspeak on my part. He actually starts with the glory of God. If you look at Acts chapter 7, in the very first words, he's basically saying the glory of God is what appeared to Abraham to give him a challenge And so we have to learn that everything about our life and our faith started with God. He loved us. He cared about us. He thought about us. He designed us. And we could talk all day long about the power of our Father in heaven that Jesus taught us to talk about. In the Old Testament, Yahweh, it's like this this name above all names, this Holy One, this constant presence, this God that is always with us. So he starts with this glory of God. And then, he talk, and then if, if we had a faith or a nation that was 100, well, let me just say this, 1,500 to 2,000 years old, I think we might understand a little bit more of what's happening here. We don't, a lot of us don't have a tie-in to a people life that has been driven by people like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I mean, we're not, most of us in this room are non-Jewish, so we don't understand how powerful it would be to talk about these families and the impact on their life because they had been shaped by them for over 1,500 years. They've been talking about the same people, and they meant something. And, they, and, and, to, and to say that somebody was speaking against the fathers is much like some people in our country right now are saying things about, um, well, we're speaking about the fathers of our nation that penned things, and there's so much tension around the trustworthiness based upon their things that they wrote and the things they were doing in their homes, right? And so that you can you can push some people's buttons in our country just by being disparaging to uh, an early president or an early writer of, of our Declaration of Independence. But that is no match for speaking against the founders of Israel, the fathers of that, that nation and the things that they had happened because it was powerful. And so for them to accuse Stephen of the things that they're accusing him of was bigger than just the temple and the law. I mean, the law goes all the way back to Moses, which is the next character he talks about. And so there is so much happening here that we can't even fully understand the weight of because we're not connected as much, not all of us, some of us are, but we're not connected to the power of a family that's generational and the impact that that would have. 
Abraham was before the temple, before the temple was even important and, and valid. And Abraham went through so many different things. That's, where we're gonna, that's why we find him so much in the early chapters of Acts. But Stephen isn't denying the, the importance and the value of Abraham. In this early part of his discourse, he's actually talking about Abraham in, in a way that they all would agree. The problem is, is that they weren't seeing themselves as anti-Abraham. They were seeing themselves as with Abraham. And Stephen has this tone in telling the story. Oh, wait a minute. I want you to follow along because I'm going to twist this on you. So what we find here is that in this early part, Stephen is laser focused on what is also talked about in two other very important New Testament passages. I don't have time to get into them, but I want you to look at them this week. Romans chapter 4 and Galatians chapter 3. Because Paul, into the church in Rome, into the church in Galatia, does an incredible job of making sense of Genesis chapter 15. Which Genesis chapter 15 is where God, through a covenant with Abraham, starts to set his plan for what was screwed up in Genesis 3 through 11. So when you read Genesis 3 through 11 and you begin to see how broken the world had become and how much things were going to just away from God, an anti-God, a, a, a separation from God, God came to Abraham and was starting an intentional family that was to be for all nations a light to the world. And so when you begin to look at this, Stephen is using that story and that purpose and the intent of who they were supposed to be. And the tension over the holy land, the holy ground that they were on, was starting to be felt here. And part of the reason why I believe that there is a tension around the land is because we don't, well, let me just say this, I don't believe we understand the dirt in the story as much as we want to handle the spiritual side of the scriptures. The land was never allowed to be sold from family to family. They even had laws that said if it by chance was in the 50th year, it had to be returned back to the family. So land was important. But what did we find happening in the first couple chapters of Acts? People were doing what? They were selling property, selling land in excesses amounts and saying, you don't have what you need. I'm going to sell what I have and give it to you. So now the people in and around the temple are like, wait a minute, that's holy land. You can't get rid of that land. That's not your land to get rid of. And so Stephen is taking them back to when even the land was promised to them. And he's showing them how they were getting off track. And he knows that if he does this well, he's going to die. Which didn't discourage him, by the way. I just want you guys to understand, at the very beginning of this, he could have been like, whoa, guys, you're totally misunderstanding me. I'm not speaking bad about the temple. I'm not speaking bad about the law. Thank you very much. And gone off. Like, he could have easily just walked away from that. But no, what does he do? He smacks the stinking bull on the nose and grabs it by the horns. That's what he's done here. Because he's so passionate about the fact that they're off. They don't get it. They're not seeing it. And at the sake of his own life, it was so important that the people that were listening and watching were hearing what he was saying. And I wish that we had more of that type of boldness in our faith. Where we, now again, that does, I am not condoning, like if Andrew, I've always used Andrew as an example because I love that he sits in the front row. He's not been scared away yet. But if Andrew is antagonizing me about Jesus, I'm not saying to pop him in the nose and be like, you just don't get it. That bull analogy was just about the tone in the heart behind the truth. Now, there's nothing in this passage so far where Stephen has in any way been rude, hostile, 
arrogant or in any way demeaning to them. He gets to that at the very end. All right, so, so here we go. So in this, one of the things that he begins to do is he then brings them not just from Abraham and starts talking to them about Joseph because Joseph was seeing dreams and visions, and part of the covenant was this journey that they were going to go into captivity, they were going to come out of captivity. But what type of family did Joseph have? A jealous, dysfunctional family. Joseph was immature. Joseph had a mouth on him. Joseph was like, God has given me a vision, and all of you are going to bow down to me. Like, that is not the way to share with your family something that God has revealed to you. Right. There's a better way than to walk around like, yes, someday all of you will be at my feet. Right. So there's a little bit of immaturity in Joseph, but it's not that that doesn't deal with the fact that he had truth. Like there was something God was going to do and God used it and used all of it. But his brothers betrayed him, sold him into slavery. Fast forward. He's now promoted to the right hand of Pharaoh, second in command in all of Egypt. Famine comes. Brothers show up. Forgiveness is given. Powerful scene. Right. But yet he was rejected and despised by his brothers when he was the one coming to begin to tell them about what was happening in his life. So he's reminding them of this. And I I think it's really important that I share this with you guys. One of the greatest arts of our Christian theology is to know how to tell the story. I I, I want you guys to, to, to fathom this. And I've said this redundantly, and I probably will say it a couple more times. We've got to do this. Some of you do not mind standing up in front of the mirror and practicing a speech or a dissertation defense or whatever you do. You practice it out loud and you are willing to do this. Where are we practicing? Yes, I get a chance to practice about 45 Sundays out of the year and standing up in front of you and talking about Jesus. And so some days I feel like I do a good job. Other days I don't. But you, like where are we creating opportunities for you? to begin to start saying, well, let's go back to the beginning. Let me talk to you about God's promises to Abraham. Let me talk to you about God's promises that were fulfilled through Joseph and then fulfilled through Moses and what that means and how Jesus came into the world. We need to get better at that. For those of you that want to really dive into that in in a lot, let me just make a book recommendation to you. Now, mind you, it's like a 700-page book, so it's not for the easy summer read. But it's called um, The Day the Revolution Began by N.T. Wright. It's probably the most concise, most thought out telling of the narrative of what God's been doing in the world all the way through Christ. He Actually, it's all about Christ, then taking Christ into the Old Testament, bringing Christ all the way into the New Testament and the purpose of the church. And if you want to have a crash course and earn at least 10 seminary credit hours, there's your book for you, okay? I want you guys to run after that. and so Jesus, we've got to learn, because the story of the Old Testament and the story of Jesus, as the climax, now it wasn't like the Old Testament was just a story and then end and then Jesus. Jesus is the climax of the Old Testament. Everything in the Old Testament was coming to Christ. And then everything from Christ forward is the church, and there's a plan. It's not that this was God trying out stuff, and then God figured out stuff. This was all intentional, Old Testament, New Testament. God didn't wake up one day and let Jesus go, everything else I've tried has failed because God can't do what? He can't fail. He can't make mistakes. He's perfect. He's all-powerful. He's all-knowing. 
So everything that's recorded in the Bible is not a statement that God can't. It is a statement on our part that we're sinners, that we're separated from him in need of salvation. And God realized in his plan that everything had to point towards Jesus. And the more that we understand that, the better that we're going to be able to respond. And so the verses around 17 through 34 begin to target and to move them to their deep roots. And the one thing that every Jew had in common, and let me just tell you this, this is so important because it is not common in Christianity today. It is, it's different. There was not a Jew that did not believe that the law of Moses was God's law for them. Now, they had troubles in interpretation like everybody else. Like they had different denominations, so to speak, of ways in interpreting the laws of Moses. But you would have been hard fought to find a Jew that did not believe that the law was God's and that it was fixed and it was unalterable. Now, that's hard in the church today because there are a lot of people that you can bump into that even go to church that don't trust the Bible. They don't think it's right. They don't think there's parts that are wrong. And so there's a lot of skepticism around it. That was not the tone of first century Judaism. They knew that this was from God. It was for them. And they had to understand it and live it out because it was from God. And so now Stephen has found a way to start to address issues where they are confident that they know God. They are confident that they've gotten the law from God. But they are not clearly seeing what's happening. And Stephen is trying to paint a picture for them. And so there's three things that he talks about Moses in these verses. The first one is, is that Moses was raised up by God. So he's showing them, look, let me talk to you about Moses for a moment. I want to show you that Moses was raised up by God. He was placed into a special situation where all the children were being killed. He was rescued. He grew up in Pharaoh's family. He came out of Pharaoh's family. He lived in the wilderness and was being trained there. He came back. And, and the process of all that, he had already committed murder. He was already running from things. He was now past 40 years old as an adult, coming back. And next thing you know, the people of Israel look at him like, you come back to kill us too? You know, what are you doing? Like, they didn't, they didn't just like, yay, Moses is here. Let's go cross the Red Sea. They, they antagonized him. They didn't follow him willingly. And if it wasn't for his sister and Aaron jumping on board and helping, the people of Israel had a hard time looking to Moses. But he had talked to God personally. But he didn't get to carry the burning bush around with him. Like, he didn't get to dig it up and put it on a trailer and go around and be like, look, there's God. Look, you don't believe me? Hello, God, talk from the bush. He didn't get to do that. That was for him. That holy ground moment was the first holy ground moment. Like, before the temple, there was holy ground. And it was in the middle of the wilderness in a burning fire around a bush to Moses. And I think there's a reason why Stephen is going here with this is because it was so important for them to understand this. Moses was a special man, raised up by God and sent. And the second thing is Moses was rejected. I already alluded to that. Moses, in many ways, looked like a disastrous failure. But then there was these triumphal moments. The third thing, Moses was the one to whom and through whom the glory of God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, revealed himself in a fresh way. Imagine, over 400 years, actually James says it was 430 years in his letter to the early church that they were in captivity. Nothing. That's longer than our nation has been in existence. Nothing. And then Moses shows up. 
God loves you. All right, I think we don't grasp how that generation forced to make bricks for generations upon generations. I mean, there was only one option of work, make bricks. That was it. They, they made bricks for 430 years. That's all they did. Father to son, grandson, great-grandson, great-grandson. They all did the same thing daily. And as it got closer to the end, the intensity of the labor even increased. Supplies were being withheld, but the demand was being increased. It was terrible. And then that person shows up saying, I represent God. But can you understand how the power and the importance of Moses would have been to the story of this family and the impact it was having in that first generation in captivity in Egypt still? I think it's important for me to note here that Stephen um, has said nothing disparaging about Moses. Because again, the charges in chapter 6 were against the temple and the law, but Stephen is not disparaging Moses. I think it's really important that we, we understand this because he is not saying that this is worthless. They all missed it. He was talking about the intent that God was using them for in revealing himself to them. Moses was prepared, he was equipped, he was heading, he was on holy ground. He had these moments where he was bringing in the salvation to people, um, but yet he himself was one of them, right? So Stephen, I believe, um, is trying to help this early church realize that God's doing something and has always been doing something special in people, and now he's starting to build a case about the fact that they are using the temple as a form of idolatry. Now, this is where Stephen knows that the people are going to be angry. Because if there was one of the Ten Commandments that that is redundantly used throughout all the Old Testament, it is do not make what? Idols with human hands. And so he is now, in this teaching, accusing them of using the temple as an item made with human hands. I'm getting a little bit of a taste of that. And I'm going to ask for your prayers because today is the last day I rush away from here and I head over to Riverside on the other side. Some of you are aware that we've, we're given a church building on the other side to plant a new church in. But rather than planting a new church, there's already a church over there called the Foundry Church with Pastor Scott and Caro. They love Jesus, teach about Jesus, are doing incredible work of Jesus. And rather than us plant a church in competition, so to speak, in the same neighborhood, we're, we've asked them to move into the building. And they're going to be, starting July 1st, they're moving into the building. The only problem is, is that there's a group of people that came with the building that are older. And um, right now, some of them, um, I think, would physically take me out into the park and thrash me. Um, others of them are embracing the transition and they're loving. But it's been a battle because in their mind right now, the building is sacred. And the other church is painting new colors on the walls and is tearing stage pieces apart that have been there forever. And to the point where one lady came up to me after the picnic a few weeks ago, it was supposed to be a friendly picnic. And she just said, Ellis, I want to slap your face. But there was a word before that that I can't say from the stage. Right. And so I'm not used to being disrespected quite that badly. But it let me know that when you start touching the church building, that has been around since 1889. And some of these people, I think, have been there since. 
right? That's what it feels like. They are struggling to understand the changes in the transition. But here's the thing. Somewhere along the line, they don't feel loved. Somewhere along the line, in the midst of the changing and the transitioning, they're not getting the fact that they are loved. They're not hearing truth. They're not understanding that, yes, we've walked you through and talked to you about the changes. We've asked you about the changes. We've asked you to participate in the changes. But just because of that, and so in the process of all of that, it's so easy to come up to the line and just respond. But how do you go back and say, Let me, let's, let's go back to the early days. Let's go back to 1911 when there were 500 people on your roll. 500 people were on their roll in 1911. World War I, right? 500 people. There's 25 people on the roll now, right? And so there is so much history here of talking about what has gone on. What do we see? Where, where have the people gone? Why are we not continuing to be effective? And if we're not careful, we'll short an answer, and then they'll feel insulted. Because you can't just say to somebody, well, well, underneath your care, you guys stopped making disciples, you stopped sharing Jesus, and you stopped baptizing people, and now people aren't coming. You can't just cut to the truth, which some of us, it's our natural desire to do so. Some of us just like to say it the way it is, with as few words as possible, and it doesn't matter if it hurts your feelings, it's just got to be said. But that's not what Stephen's doing here. Stephen is going back because he doesn't want to tick them off. He wants them redeemed. He wants them to see the truth. He wants them to see hope. He wants them to see life. And he knows that he can't just answer their question. He's got to go back and tell the story to why the question is even important in the first place. Because their eyes have gotten off of God and are now just on a building where God once spoke to them and did mighty things. But now Jesus is saying, anywhere you go, I go with you. The presence of God goes with you. The Holy Spirit goes with you. And they weren't seeing that. And he's trying to help them to understand And so everything about what's happening here is now shifted to idolatry. And it really does start to the point of getting Stephen to the point where they know that he knows they're going to kill him because their hearts are hard. They're not obeying. Stephen. Yeah, let me let me let me jump to verses 54 through 83 here just for a moment, because Stephen is claiming that he's standing with Abraham, Moses, David, Solomon, and the prophets. But the temple leaders are standing with Joseph's brothers. This is what he said, in this, just to summarize the scriptures that we just came out of through verse 53. You're standing with Joseph's brothers. You're standing with the Israelites that rejected Moses. You are standing with the Israelites that helped Aaron build a golden calf. That's what he's saying to them. Now, can you see why they're getting a little ticked off to the point of angry, covering their ears? And I don't want you to think of some zombie movie when it says that they were gnashing their teeth against him. That's not the imagery here. They didn't become human zombies, okay? Gnashing their teeth means the violence of their words, their language, and their yelling, and their tone, and the things. They weren't becoming cannibals towards him or wanting to spread some sort of weird disease. All right? And so... In verses 54 through 83, it starts to bring this concept of being a martyr. And now I think a lot of us have learned to just understand a martyr as somebody that dies for their faith. But I want you to understand it means a lot more than that. The actual word martyr technically means witness. It technically means somebody that's giving evidence. 
That's a lot different than saying that they just died for their faith. There's more power in it when we grasp the fact that when a martyr dies, they are prepared to say in a witness that their faith in their God and their faith in the, 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 the truth and even the understanding specifically for Christians is that it is more important that I let my life go for my faith than to defend my life for my faith. And they are giving their life as a witness that is something beyond our wildest imaginations. And I love how the end of chapter 6, it was talking about the glow of Stephen. I could only imagine. And then there is this powerful point at the end of chapter 7 into chapter 8 that I can't get into, but I want to mention to you. Because I don't know how else to take time to spend a week talking about it. But there is something in martyrdom in this witness and in this evidence that allows you to see both dimensions of heaven and earth at the same time. Now, I don't want any of us to find out the truth in that because there's only one way that you can find out the truth of that. But there's a moment in here where Stephen can see both his accusers and Jesus stand up at his defense. I mean, yeah, thank Peaches. I'm grateful that Peaches is here because the rest of you just don't get it, Right? It is, it, Jesus stood up for, for Stephen in his defense and was sharing at the throne room of God something special for Stephen, so much so that Stephen had embraced what Jesus had been teaching and starts to quote Jesus from the cross, Father, do not hold their sins against them. He had been listening to the teachings of Jesus. He didn't think they were just good teachings. They were things that he was supposed to do. And there's something powerful in this moment of martyrdom where Stephen is getting a clear picture of both heaven and earth. But like I said, I don't have anything else to say about that other than the fact that that's what took place. So here at the end of the story, we find that in Christianity, following Jesus is what we must discover. The whole story of Stephen is all about getting to Jesus. And we must do the same. Because if we truly follow after Jesus and we truly learn what Jesus taught, we're going to live totally differently. And with me saying that, I just want to give you a foreshadowing. The month of August, we're taking a break from our teachings through Acts. And we're going to do just five weeks, actually July 29th through the end of August, on five teachings that I feel like are very controversial but yet have a lot to do with what Jesus taught, and we're going to be looking at it. Um, two of the weeks will be PG-13 weeks, and we're going to keep children under the age of 10 to 13 out of the room because we're going to be talking about sexuality in our culture today. And we're going to be talking about what Jesus has to say about it and what other parts of the Bible have to say about it. And we're going to get into a lot of things, everything from... I'm looking around the room to see how ages right now... Um, Everything from living together to sex before marriage to transgender to homosexuality, um, masturbation, other things like that. We're just going to get into all of it. All right? Come in August. It's going to be great. We'll make sure the air conditioning is working by those Sundays. Um, we're also going to talk about the impact of community and why those issues that I just me mentioned and why things in our culture are so tense that it's destroying the community life of the church and why we're really not experiencing family. We talk about family. We talk about being brothers and sisters, but we're still struggling to fully embrace family life 
in the church. And if we're going through Acts, we're realizing that they had experienced family and they were running after family. They weren't going to quit running after family. And so we're going to address a lot of things that I feel like will help us get through that. And my wife's actually, if things go well with her father this summer and things are right for August, she's working on a teaching about women and what God uses women to accomplish. And this is why I want you guys to understand that if you follow me on social media, I I, I put a hint out this week. There's a reason why we ended on verse 3 of chapter 8 on this sermon of Stephen. Because the sermon is technically over, and now we're just in the response of Saul. But it says that he not only had everybody laying clothes at his feet and basically acknowledging that Saul was growing in power and growing in this death that's, that's spreading, but it, scriptures say very specifically that he went around arresting both men and women and was throwing them in prison. And in the first, like again, we're not first century Jewish culture. We don't understand the impact of this fully, and that's one of the things I want to talk to you about is because women in the first century were not even allowed to give witness in court. They weren't a trustworthy testimony. So even if they witnessed the crime and you were the called to, to share, you could share exactly what you saw and you would have no value in court. So why was Paul arresting the women when they had no value? Let me tell you why. Because they were a part of the change that was happening. Their words were changing lives. Their actions were changing the kingdom of God. They weren't ineffective. They weren't to be ignored. They were making a massive difference in the first century. And we've got to get to a point as a church where we shed all of the baggage and the history of everything that's been going on and realize, ladies, that God wants to build his church through you too. It's not just for somebody like me as a male to stand up in front of you and be a teacher and an exhorter and encourager of the church. There's a role for women that is beyond our wildest imaginations, the thing that God wants to do. And so I've, my wife and I have been talking through the scriptures that she's going to use. And I think my wife is on pace to have the longest teaching that we've ever had on the stage of our church. And so in some ways I'm asking her to edit, but I'm like, that's too good. So we might just sing one song and just go after it that Sunday because you're going to be fired up by what you hear because it's all true. And so I think Jesus has another way he wants us to live. I think Jesus has a way that he wants us to be effective. I think that Jesus has a way of convicting us when we have idolatry. I think that Jesus has a way of showing us when we're believing something that's not true. I think Jesus actually has a way that brings life. And we've got to continue to discover that. So as this sermon with Stephen ends... I think my encouragement and my challenge to us is this. Where are you worshiping an idol? Where have you made this life about you? Like Stephen, do we allow our day to be started with the glory of God? Do we wake up every day aware that we're in the glory of God? Have we learned to share the story of salvation? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this morning and the opportunity for us to be together.
Um, and Father, right now as we close and sing a couple of songs and we come to the Lord's table, Father, I ask in Jesus' name that you would build your church, that you'd make us more mature. Father, that you would help us to learn to use words to, sh- to share the story of Christ and that we wouldn't look for the quick and sassy answers, but yet we would look for the rich story and meanings of the things that, 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 that bring life. Uh, Father, I pray that Stephen's example, even up to death, would be an example that would inspire us, Lord, knowing that, that you got us. You'll stand at our defense, that there's more to this life, and that heaven and earth are so close together that we could actually see them both at the same time. And Father, that's actually what prayer can do for us. And we just pray, Lord, right now that you would pull that veil back more and more and that we could see your glory in this world today. Father, we want to be representatives of you. We want to be agents of yours, Lord. We want to be ambassadors, as Paul talks about it. So, Lord, would you help us to do that? Father, we don't want to have any form of idolatry. Father, we want to set aside selfishness. And Lord, we want to be like Christ. So Lord, we love you and we thank you. And it's Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen.